Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, May 28th, 2021. We are on the cusp of Memorial Day weekend. We will not be recording Monday for Memorial Day. So I hope everybody has wonderful plans here in the Northeast. It's apparently going to be cold and rainy. So that's really great. Very excited about that. Even though, you know, according to Noah Rothman's own governor, uh, you know, Memorial Day is the was the magical time when suddenly every fact pattern that we've seen in relation to COVID over the last six months suddenly immediately came true and the, the state can open for Memorial Day so everyone can get rained on. So uh, his... Um, well, the his, science doesn't follow the weather, John. The science is the science. That's uh, absolutely true. That, of course, being Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, also with us, Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Abe, you know, I got to tell our listeners that um, the mail uh, continues to pour in, uh, which is interesting about about our, our, our asking you guys whether we should remain a daily podcast or not. I think we got another 150 to 200 emails yesterday. Um, and there are two things overwhelming. So this brings the total to, I don't know, five or 600. Anyway, there are two Two important things to say. One is that uh, the overwhelming majority of you uh, wants us to continue daily, and so we're going to continue daily. Some people were saying, if you find it too much of a burden, and I understand if you find it too much of a burden, but I really like it. I got to tell you, to be in all honesty, we do not find this a burden. We're loquacious people. Uh, we would be talking anyway uh, instead of not talking. Uh, if there were no podcasts. So we're happy to do it as long as people want it and you appear to want it. That's number one. Number two, they want more Abe. People want more Abe. Now, I don't know if the wanting of more Abe is itself a testament to Abe's brilliant and careful management of his time on this podcast so that every aperçu lands you know, like a brilliant diamond, you know, dug from, uh, you know, dug from a mine. But Abe, they they want more of you. There's no accounting for taste. Okay, see, that's really good. That was an excellent. That was an excellent repast. Just the kind of thing that makes them want, this, want this, more Abe. But this could be the end of me because now there's pressure with every line. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, welcome to the show, buddy. You're in the big leagues now. You gotta, you gotta throw the changeup and the fastball and a curve. You just, you can't just, you can't just have one, one pitch. The kind of, you know, I'll just drop in, say something good, and then I'll, you know, then I'll lay back. Your, there are I thought, expectations. I thought I'm the one that went into this saying, "Go easy on me." <laughs> you did, and and they did. They went easy on you. Yeah. Let's face it. Um, uh, one place uh, where they're not going easy on anybody is Wuhan. How's that for a tra- that for an absolutely awful transition? Seamless. It was seamless. Oh, thank you. Um, so listen, um, I'm actually going to, be- weirdly enough, we're only uh, three and a half minutes into this, but I'm going to start with our first uh, ad because it's an interesting lead-in to what we're going to talk about. Uh, Dan Senor's post-corona podcast, which you hear me talk about almost every week, uh, the podcast that Dan started, uh, you can get it at Apple, uh, 
Podcasts and Google Play and Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts to lay out the lay of the land and the world of what, what life is going to be like when we emerge from Corona. And one of the clear things that is emerging as we come out of uh, Corona is a renewed interest in trying to get to the bottom of how this all started. And so Dan has two guests on his podcast that drops today and you can listen to post-Corona. One is commentary tech commentary columnist Jim Meggs, and he starts his podcast with Jim laying out the story of the lab leak hypothesis, where it comes from, why people thought it was happening, and how this uh, idea was was essentially stymied from uh, from its origins by a concerted effort to say that the idea itself was illegitimate given the nature of the pandemic. And then he follows up with a long interview with Senator Tom Cotton, who, of course, is not, I wouldn't describe him as the founder or originator of the Lab League hypothesis, but he was the leading politician in Washington to say and wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on this very point, I believe, in March of 2020 to say that there was evidence, and he is a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, evidence that uh, the virus, which we had been told, jumped from the uh, wet market or something like that in in Wuhan, where people buy live uh, animals, uh, exotic live animals to cook them, um, that it jumped from a bat or something like that into humans because of this. And that the, and he said, there's more evidence, we don't know, but the Wuhan Viral Laboratory Institute is only blocks away from the wet market in any case. And so we're looking at this one place and what, why aren't we looking at this other where in fact there is a history of working with and around coronaviruses. And for this, of course, as we know, Tom Cotton was pilloried by the mainstream media, called a conspiracy theorist, the Wuhan lab leak theory was called a conspiracy and part of some effort to i don't know burnish trump i don't be xenophobic it's not entirely clear to me what the what the geo what the national political ramifications were this was early enough that there shouldn't have been much of a difficulty or a problem being able to say hey you know there's something suspicious going on in china it's not like china's reputation was at an all-time high when this happened. China had just quashed democracy in Hong Kong, something that the entire world, including Democrats and liberals, uh, viewed with uh, horror and dismay um, as as the you know communist authoritarian government moved uh, as it does inexorably in the pursuit of its own uh, interest. Uh, but the WHO didn't want it, and and apparently Democrats and liberals didn't want it because they believed somehow that it would it would help Trump to be able to say that it was the Wuhan flu. And so the podcast uh, goes through all of this with 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 uh, Senator Cotton and into the question of why now? Why has this lab leak hypothesis suddenly come charging out of the? you know, of the shadows and back into the center of the American political discussion. Uh, it's an amazing conversation. Post-Corona with Dan Senor, a very important podcast. Uh, go to Apple 
Google Play, Stitcher, download it, listen, be enlightened, amused, horrified, and get a real sense of how the world really works. So to move on from that, President Biden yesterday announced that he wanted a 90-day gallop uh, by his intelligence agencies to report to him in 90 days on the lab leak hypothesis. And we're told in the New York Times this morning that this didn't come out of nowhere, that there's apparently evidence for which they need massive computing power that only the president can authorize. So I assume that means the use of computers at either the NSA or some agency we don't barely know about that has massive computing power to assimilate intelligence data that were never properly examined or studied um, that will clarify this picture and this question. And President Biden said that this is a report that he would absolutely make public unless there's something there he doesn't know about. So that means unless the intelligence itself reveals things that you know, uh, national security should, uh, should veil. Um, it's a kind of pretty startling development. I, I don't see where all the pressure was on him in particular to involve himself in this, which leads me to believe that there was some kind of an, Oh my God moment over the last couple of weeks that wasn't triggered by Nicholas Wade's brilliant piece in medium on the lab leak hypothesis or other stuff but that uh, somebody said, oh, my God, there's this whole pile of stuff we got from satellites or whatever that we just never went through systematically. Well, it's interesting to me because earlier in the week, there was a press conference with Jen Psaki um, where she, she was taking uh, questions about the lab leak hypothesis and other things. And uh, Peter Ducey from Fox, right? challenged her and said, well, why hasn't the administration, since since the CDC seems not to really have a good handle on this, um, since, since we're now taking the lab leak hypothesis seriously, um, why hasn't the administration um, launched its, its own um, in, investigation to this? Why is it waiting on international bodies? And Jen Psaki said, I don't think you understand how this works. We don't want to rush. We don't we need to let the proper organizations get the proper information. And this was all treated, at least in social media, um, as like, uh, you know, uh, Jen Psaki shuts down. Uh, 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 evil Peter Fox Ducey. News guy. Evil yeah, Fox exactly. He shuts down evil Fox News guy, gets the best of the exchange. Um, uh, and here we are now, days later, as you say, uh, the administration is, in fact, galloping Um uh, to this, to this um, American investigation. But that we should also add that earlier this week, CNN was reporting that the Biden administration had earlier shut down a, a, a ongoing investigation that the Trump administration had started into lab leaks under Pompeo as Secretary of State. Um, the the in the insinuation for that shutdown was that well we can't trust anything that 
that you know Trump's administration was doing. But it's also bad press for them to have looked like they were just too dismissive of the idea all along. And that's another another incentive for Biden to suddenly shift gears and lean in on it. It should also be noted that the World Health Organization has been uh, complicit in its dealings with China from the beginning of this pandemic. And that cannot and should not be forgotten, including by the Biden administration. So the idea of Saki appealing to the higher natures of international bodies is incredibly suspect when it comes particularly to the WHO. Well, the WHO, I mean, you know, so trying to, trying to let's say, um, uh, sort through all of the contradictions here, if we go back, so we see uh, Trump uh, suspending flights from China or whatever, how, how there was at the end of June, of January. And so the, so the, the uh, 2020 is about an election. And so the general approach of the Democratic Party, which of course had just, um, you know, gone through its impeachment, um, was to say that anything, everything, every possible thing that the president said or did had a had an illegitimate, uh, fascistic or uh, propagandistic root. And so it sort of didn't matter what he said or what he did. Everything about him was evil, you know. Um, I'm sort of trying to think of a, of a, of a sort of a character in, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, in the annals of, of literature to sort of reflect this. You know, he's like, he's like, he was like a bad guy. He was like a cartoon bad guy. So if he said something was white, you had to assume something was black. And so he's like, there's this thing coming from China. We're going to shut down China, and you know China has been bad to us, and uh, you know, and and uh, we don't like them anyway, and all of that. And so suddenly, everybody is going to China. Every Democratic politician is going to Chinatown, wandering through crowds, saying, "Don't worry, don't wear a mask. You know, d- d- do everything you can to support our." you know, uh, Asian and Pacific Islander brethren from this um, unprecedented assault. And, um, you know, I I wonder whether the, there is going to be a long-term lingering political consequence from this that I never really anticipated, which is uh, I think Trump is gearing up to run again. I mean, I've thought that from the outset, I don't see any reason to think uh, differently. Um, and the, the exposure of the, of the, the, if this happens, the truth or, you know, or that it's more true, more likely than not that the lab, that, that the lab leak hypothesis is real will allow Trump to put himself in a position that he was not in during his entire presidency which is that he was a truth teller. He was a truth teller and they cut off his legs and destroyed his presidency because they didn't want him to tell the truth. And that can spread outward to things like the remdesivir treatment, which as you'll remember, Trump saying, you know, there's this stuff called remdesivir can really help, was treated as some act of, monstrous quackery you know he was some snake oil salesman 
And certainly he did things that were snake oil salesman-y, right? With the bleach and the shine of light down your throat and some of that stuff. But the the cocktail of of treatments that he talked about, remdesivir and then that other... Uh, hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. Those work. It is, it is... I know people, doctors, who prescribe hydroxychloroquine for themselves at the very earliest stages of COVID and had their symptoms mitigated. It didn't cure it. It wasn't a curative, but... No, it's um, a therapeutic. And it's still being yeah. prescribed as a therapeutic. And right. yeah, the way it was treated, and just to briefly interrupt, the way it was treated was contemptible and is still contemptible by the press. But we should be careful not to remedy one oversimplistic political narrative by adopting another. We don't know the outcome of this investigation. We don't know what it's going to produce. The likelihood that this thing possibly evaded uh, you know, security in a, in a lab in a, in, a, in a level four capacity, it's possible. But the outcome of this thing could be really ambiguous, it could be that it was the product of research that developed in an animal that was then lost as a, as a result of that production. And then we'll end up with a very muddy narrative. Now, look, it would yes, be political practice, not for Donald Trump, to leverage that for whatever capacity he can and to say, take a victory lap. He's deserving of one. But it would be just as noxious for Republicans to say, here's this answer. It's black and white. We have the, we have this now it's completely politically advantageous. We've just, we've, we've all our enemies lay defeated before us. It would be just as bad. And we'd be complicit in, 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 in another effort to obscure truth in favor of a political narrative, just as much as the press was. Okay. I just want to say before Abe gets, gets in here, um, I, I agree with everything you said there. My scenario actually implied a more um a more unambiguous finding i have no we have no idea what the what the finding is i will tell you that the story in the times about the deployment of the uh of the supercomputer capacity um is very pregnant with meaning in other words they're not just going to sort through what they know now and say this is a possible theory just like it passed from from a bat at the at the you know at the wet market uh they have some body of evidence that went unexamined that uh you know under other circumstances could conceivably in previous times could have taken years to sort through and it would be one of those things where 20 years later somebody comes out and says hey you know what it was probably a lab leak. They, they, they may be in a position to say whether it was or it wasn't three months from now. So my scenario only involves a finding that seems to validate, at, at the very least, validate the possibility to likelihood that COVID was the result of a lab leak. And there are political implications also, but A, please. Um, well, my my fear is that um, if the results are, are conclusive about a lab leak, it could also open up a new, very ugly front in our paranoid conspiratorial politics because people react um, very dramatically to the idea of gain-of-function research and there is an American component here that people like to talk about how we worked in w- w- with China on this stuff, how Dr. How Dr. Fauci may have been covering up for that. And, um, you know, w- w- what were we up to in all this? 
Um, so I, I think it's like ripe for um, exploiting in terms of the kind of QAnon type uh, style politics as well. If if that happens, and I think Abe's right, that's it's a very real possibility, especially considering how uh, ripe the American population proved for earlier conspiracy theories in the past few years. A lot of that blame is going to shift to some of the outlets, not just the media outlets, but but uh, places like Facebook, which took down information about the lab leak, calling it a conspiracy theory, controlling the information flow. One of the reasons conspiracy theories flourish is because things like that happen, right? They they really kind of jumped the gun. It was obviously a, a somewhat partisan move on Facebook's part. Uh, this idea that these uh, technology companies and media institutions should be cl- uh, defining what misinformation and disinformation is when their track record is really bad on being correct about that is going to continue to allow these theories to flourish, the conspiracy theories, because people aren't do, I think, correctly feel that they're not getting all the information and that powerful institutions are controlling what is released and often shifting narratives and sometimes just flat out lying about things. It's an inevitability, but it also replaces... You know, it all violates Hanlon's razor, right? I mean, just the assumption on the press that everything Donald Trump said was evil as opposed to just dumb is a violation of Hanlon's razor. The notion the notion here that you know, what happened in this Wuhan land was malicious, was an act that was done to us. It was a violation of Hanlon's razor. We should assume everybody just acted as they with the best of intentions, but really stupidly. Because that's Wait, usually who, how it happens. Who is Hanlon? Uh, Heinlein. It's either Heinlein or Hanlon. They, they're both reproduced in, in different fashions. But the razor is that we should what, never assume malice when stupidity is a more uh, ah, oh, so Robert more, Heinlein, uh, comprehensive okay. explanation for human behavior. I, I just didn't know there was another razor other than than, than Occam's. Uh, so no, now I, not, I, there, there are many razors. Okay. Yeah, I have a razor. I even have my own razor. You do? Everybody's got Ro- to go. Rothman's razor. Five blades. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole. We're not getting into that because we used to have a razor sponsor, and we don't have one anymore. So the hell with them. Um, I used to mistake for my local shoe store, but uh, so here, here's what I was thinking in terms of the 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 large scale societal impact of what it would mean if this was a lab, if this had been and had actually been a lab leak. Uh, last night, Zeke Emanuel, the brother of Ram and Ari, the doctor who uh, says things like everybody should die at 75 uh, because what's the point, um, which is a nice thing to say to my parents who are currently uh, 91 and about to be 94 and seem to be living a very nice life. So the hell with him, Zeke Emanuel and his r- repellent philosophy about how we all have a duty to die so that I don't know why, so that he can stand around and be on more panels. But anyway, Zeke Emanuel is a, is a, you know, a, a doctor helped with Obamacare, did some good work in the eighties against Kevorkian and all of that, though that actually had interesting negative implications also. But he went on somebody, he was on Kate Baldwin show or something on, I think on, on, on CNN and was asked about the lab leak, and he was like, I, I don't know why we want to look into the past. We need to be looking into the future to prevent the next pandemic. Now, this is a very interesting line, uh, because, of course, if it were the case that this, w- this was an engineered virus that escaped from a lab, 
the idea that we are at comparable risk from future naturally occurring pandemics, that risk level has to be lowered radically from what we think it is now. And the kind of preparations we need to make for the next pandemic need to be recalibrated because it's not like we're living in a period in which in which coronaviruses are mutating naturally in case, if this is the case, I'm just saying, um, something happened here that was the result of a horrible human error. And we're, we, the entire planet doesn't have to recalibrate itself after a one horrible set of human errors uh, and, you know, make its economies more conditional and do all this kind of prep stuff because these kinds of errors can be, you can shut the barn door after the horse has fled. You can come up with new locks to make sure the horse doesn't flee. And that's this is a whole policy, whole set of new policy ideas that are created by the possibility that the lab leak hypothesis is correct. Abe, you were going to say. but Well, yeah, but I, I can think of sort of two um, f- framings of, of this in which that's not necessarily the case. Um what if this means that we're due for more uh, uh, man-made um, uh, pandemics in that, you know, uh, meltdowns at or, or accidents at one nuclear reactor didn't stop all uh, uh, other future accidents at nuclear reactors? This, so this could happen again, um, especially with increased research going on. But also, if this wasn't a sort of once-a-century pandemic, um, then we're due for the once-a-century pandemic still. Well, and the, the, there's another, it's it's not just Zeke Emanuel on cable news saying this. There was a long piece in The Atlantic by Daniel Engber also sort of massaging this idea that, well, really, let's just move on. Let's just, it doesn't really matter what China did. But there's a separate issue beyond the kind of questions we should be raising about what kind of research we do with viruses, uh, lab safety and whatnot. And that's and this is interesting that the left wants to avoid this conversation in this context. What is the moral responsibility of a country that's allowed this to happen that's killed millions and millions of people? So what is China's global responsibility, both to, uh, you know, the world now and for acknowledging how it behaved? And what did they learn from watching what happened over the last year that could actually, from a geopolitical standpoint, be very dangerous for the United States of America and any other free country? Because that's the question that one would hope our great minds in the Biden administration would also be asking. And I find it curious that they don't, maybe they're doing it behind closed doors, but that's a discussion the public would benefit from hearing from Joe our Biden leaders. is willing to tell anybody who wants to listen that America's biggest challenge, geopolitical challenge is a rising China. We have to counter it. We have to uh, contain it militarily, roll back its soft power, all this stuff he's committed to. This is the biggest tool in the tool shed. If he's handed it, it, the fact that, I mean, Zeke Emanuel is somebody that every Democrat listens to for some bizarre reason. And if this is the mentality that that is going to be dominant on the political left, center left, then they're just going to sacrifice this opportunity. And it is golden on top of the, the fact that their vaccines were rushed and don't really actually protect you from the virus to the tune of 50 percent. I mean, they're they're sham vaccines. The president could make a really big deal of how China blew this thing and put us all into a year of misery and they should pay for it. Okay. But that this is a very, very interesting place. This conversation has gone because it gets to what does Biden mean 
when he says we're in a competition for China for, for the soul or the future of the 21st century. And I think what he means is that China's rise is his excuse for spending $18 trillion on childcare. It's not that we're in a global competition with a, uh, with a clever, industrious, serious, growing, rising um, authoritarian. authoritarian antagonist. It's that this is our opportunity to spend ourselves into oblivion, making ourselves nicer and better so that our people, when they, when they grow, when, so particularly our children, when they grow up, can do nice things and will be a nice country and everything will be nice. That in fact, this is a banality that he is expressing. There is a deep point that Biden makes when he talks about this, which is we have reason to believe that America somehow kind of flew off the rails in the 21st century. Our politics is very haphazard. It's inconstant. We aren't discussing the same reality within the United States and all of that. And there is this kind of implacable force, uh, you know, to our East (laughs) that is um, focused, concentrated, has a long-term agenda and a long-term plan. And what's going on is calling into question the viability and future of our existence, not only as a leader, but as a sort of moral leader. And that is a deep point, but he doesn't mean it because I'll just give you one example of this. So Daniel Engber is saying, yeah, we just need to move on, right? Because only 35 million people were infected by this virus worldwide, uh, you know, with about 3 million dead worldwide, 600,000 Americans close to have, have died. Uh, we, we need to move on. This entire country has been awash in an argument and a set of ideological pre- uh, predilections and presumptions over the last year over evils, over an evil that took place either 400 years ago or, you know, was ended 160 years ago or persistent, you know, complicated uh, cultural biases that take place even now that are limiting. Are we not supposed to talk about that? Because we really need to just look to the future. Let's just look to the future. Reckonings, moral reckonings for misbehaviors and or whatever you want to call it. I was unaware that this was not part of the agenda of, of, of liberals. Uh, is there a reason that, you know, Purdue Pharma is, is being, you know, systematically dismantled pretty much by law and custom because of what happened with Oxycontin? We could just, why don't we just move forward? I don't know why we need to really focus on anything like that. This is there, there's it, this is a disingenuous argument. It's because people look at China, and I think even if they're not policymakers or something, are afraid of what it will mean for us to be involved in an open conflict. They don't like open conflicts. They didn't like the Cold War because things got very heated and hot. They don't want it. And so what they want to say is, you know what? For the future, let's just be ostriches. We're not going to look into this. China, look, I think it's fair to presume that China will never agree, will never say we were responsible. China's general 
policy on these matters is to say you have Oi. Now you're back. Okay, you missed that. China's general policy on these matters. And then it dropped out. Oh, okay, okay. That's weird. It, it, just, it looked like you just hit the mute button, basically. Yeah, like but it, I, it. it did it itself. I don't know. Oh, that that's weird. weird. Okay. <laughs> it's China. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. okay. China's general policy has is not to admit fault or error, but to say no one in the world has any right or any business examining what goes on inside our borders. This is our sovereign land. This is our; these are our sovereign behaviors. What goes on in the Wuhan lab is going on within Wuhan, which is within the prefect of X, which is within China. And you can all go hang. You don't have any right to talk. Mostly, not a hundred percent. I mean, we, it'd be a mistake to talk about China like it's uh, Hussein era Iraq and weapons inspectors. They do get access to these things. There are data sharing regimes. The Chinese government itself admitted the failure of its own vaccines. It can be forced into, or at least can induced to accede to the, to the correct view of things when the evidence is, is overwhelming. This is, this is not a completely rogue state. Okay. So let's forget them and let's just talk about our own spiritual malaise when it comes to confronting China. Let's not give give one example, just the soft cultural uh, power that China already exercises over some institutions in this country. John Cena's apology to China for calling Taiwan a country recently. This was, this made the rounds I know in social media and entertainment news. And, and then people promptly forgot it, but they shouldn't forget it. A, a major American actor for, who just made a film for a major American uh, movie company apologizing in broken Mandarin to the Chinese people for having offended them. What on earth is that? Well, I mean, that that is a clear commercial. That was a clear commercial calculation, right? That was, this could harm the box office of, of, of Fast and Furious 9, I'm really excited to be in the Fast and Furious franchise. Boy, that's a good franchise to be in. I can make a lot of money. And and the studio said, you better do this or we're not going to be able to cast you in Fast and Furious 10 or in any of the other things we might want to cast you in. And he did the prudent thing and issued the apology because what does he know about Taiwan? What does he know about China? He knows nothing. He's a he's a wrestler. But and again, so, like yeah. And the I well, this is why when when people ask me as a conservative, why do you constantly enjoy calling Hollywood people hypocrites? This is why because he doesn't know anything about Taiwan and issues an apology now. But at the Academy Awards, he's going to denounce slavery. I mean, right. this is this is where we are culturally. Uh, it's it does drive yeah. conservatives crazy in a way. I think yeah. it doesn't other people. But this is why. Right. But I mean, so I, I wanted to talk about the, a certain degree of the kind of cravenness in this regard, which is long before Trump started being a hardliner on China, we neocons from, I did this at the Weekly Standard in 1996. We did a special issue on the threat of China and props to Rupert Murdoch. And I say this seriously, Rupert owned uh, the Weekly Standard. We did this issue on China Rupert had many, many commercial interests inside China. He did not complain. He did not say we shouldn't do it or anything like that. He was incredibly supportive of our in, uh, editorial independence. I want to say that because, you know, he's all treated as this kind of like world historical villain. And in fact, as somebody who 
believes in editorial independence and free expression when he grants it. And so this was a real thing. But we did this thing about why why China is a rising antagonist and we need to keep our distance. And a lot of it was about commercial stuff. And basically we said, look, they don't they don't recognize the sanctity of contract. They don't recognize good working. They don't believe in intellectual property. And if you look at that, those series of articles, everything in them came to pass. And if you talk to people in the in the aughts and in the teens who were flying over to China to do business, <clears throat> and you said, like, why are you doing it? It's sort of like, well, you know, they're the biggest market in the world. They're the biggest market in the world. And I said, well, do you want to make them more powerful? Like, what what, what is your aim here? And basically, there was a general sense that this was just, it was a gold mine. And like people said about the gold rush in the 19th century, if you just went there, the gold nuggets were just lying next to the river waiting to be picked up. And the and the systematic dismantling of property rights and this and that and sort of the intellectual thievery and the kind of turning a blind eye to human rights violations and all of that was all part and parcel of an attitude in which the West effectively contributed to China's rise, not only because it took advantage of, you know, the fewer regulations, the lower labor costs and all of that, but also because bankers were looking to get rich and, you know, VCs were looking to get rich and these companies were looking to maximize their profits and all that. And that's what they're supposed to do. But it's not what our government is supposed to do. Our government is supposed to look at the larger frame and look at this and say, is this really good? And here we are, you know, almost 30 years later, and we sold the rope that they're going to hang us with, which is what, you know, which is famously what Lenin said capitalists in the West were going to do. For Russia, these useful idiots will sell us the rope we'll hang them with. Only in this case, the rope was something they didn't even want to use, which is obviously China didn't want a coronavirus to escape from a lab. That was that if if this happened, and again, I got I'm kidding, keep saying if this happened because I want to follow Noah's point. If this happened, it was a dreadful industrial error that they made that they per- wished hadn't been made. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hiding it and they wouldn't be lying about it and they wouldn't be and they wouldn't be running with their tail between their legs maybe invading Hong Kong to distract from the coronavirus. But, you know, I just want to say on this matter of Trump as a China truth teller regarding COVID and, uh, you know, um, coming forth and, and, you know, being the one to to take them on, um, we shouldn't forget there are many, many quotes from the the beginning of the pandemic um, from Donald Trump saying things like, I just spoke with Xi He's being very cooperative. China's handling things very professionally. They've got it under control. Um, think you know all sort of sort of you know Baghdad Bob style um, stuff coming from Donald Trump about China and the virus. Well, that was one of his signature qualities as a leader, right? Was the ability to say one thing one day, mm-hmm. and you know something else five minutes later, uh, if it if it suited his. His purposes. So Trump's purpose, on the one hand, was to blame China for the virus, and on the other hand, to say the virus wasn't so terrible. 
and things weren't going to be so terrible because as he said, he wanted to be a cheerleader and he didn't want, you know, the country to, you know, fall into, I don't even know what, I mean, you know, the greatest political blunder of our lifetime, I think it's fair to say was Trump's decision to embrace a, eh, this isn't so bad. You know, we'll all be out and about, you know, by Easter, uh, 2020, it'll, you know, I assume everyone's going to be in church by Easter, 2020. Um, had he been more resolute, more serious, calmer, you know, more focused, and a, lo- a lot of things that he probably can't be, uh, we-, we would be living in a very different reality uh, today. I don't know that the death toll would be lower. I don't know that we would have handled anything would have been handled better or worse. Um, but his inconstancy wouldn't have been the major political issue of 2020. Having said that, we haven't actually dealt with this thing that I brought up, which is uh, what what will it mean politically if the if the lab leak hypothesis um is proved either proved true or more likely than not or you know basically that the conventional wisdom turns to say yeah it was probably a leak from wuhan because the um from the lab because if so uh, we're in a new a political reality. There's nothing like this. I mean, it would be as if Chernobyl happened and 500,000 Americans died of radiation poisoning. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of an analogy. Well, <clears throat> I guess, but it requires a, a, a set of leaders and a commercial culture that's willing to confront this. And the the evidence that we have is that we don't have that. Um, the evidence that we have, as Christine noted, is that there are uh, most uh, people with an interest in accessing the Chinese market are willing to tow the Chinese line, the PRC line, with varying degrees of enthusiasm, seen as hostage video is one. LeBron James, who does so enthusiastically, uh, is another. But nevertheless, it, it leans in one direction, one direction only. We saw a world react with revulsion and horror over the uh, crushing of a, of a democratic protesters in Hong Kong, and that just sort of disappeared. There were no consequences as a result. Um, we see increasingly aggressive moves towards uh, uh, Taiwan from the PRC, uh, invading its airspace on a semi-regular basis. Uh, it is talked about, when it is talked about, as sort of just a curiosity, um, not a call to arms. So mm, there's quite a lot of potential here for this thing to fizzle because we just have to move on. We just have to get on with it. And that's like, there's going to be a human instinct to want to get on with and move on from the pandemic and not use it as leverage geopolitically because it will force us to confront all these memories we're trying to bury. But I, yeah, but I, you know, I think if that happens, if, you know, if uh, media, which sort of universally is very tied up with the Chinese market, um, if they do move to kind of happy talk this or ignore it, um, I think that plays into John's earlier point about Trump being right, um, because, the, the, the you know, he's the guy who said that you can't trust the media. They are the enemy of the people. Um, and this is a I think this is a big sort of rallying point for. for yeah. Him. Hollywood's craving this, Silicon Valley's craving this. Like, think about that. So Hollywood's craving this, not only in the John Cena case, but stuff is going to be happening with Disney over the next three or four months. So Academy Award-winning director Chloe Zhao, who won the Oscar this year for her movie Nomadland, which won Best Picture, is Mutatis Mutandis, the director of the next huge Marvel 
franchise movie coming out in the fall called The Eternals. And ten they just year- dropped their trailer. Yes. Right. Ten years ago, in an interview with Filmmaker Magazine, Chloe Zhao, who, who, whose family uh, emigrated from mainland China when she was in her teens, said she was happy to leave China because she could not bear living in a country that, that ran and functioned on lies and deceit and propaganda. Mysteriously, this quote from Filmmaker Magazine has been disappeared down a memory hole Somehow, Filmmaker Magazine's version of this is no longer to be found anywhere online, and the issues of issues of the magazine are not available, like even on eBay, or if they come up, somebody buys them. Disney has clearly been systematically attempting to memory hole this criticism because it is terrified. It is terrified that this $300 million movie is going to be denied the franchise in China. And clearly, one of the reasons that they hired Chloe Zhao in their ignorance to be the editor, to be the director of The Eternals, was that she was a Chinese national. And they thought that this was something that was exploitable in China because, weirdly enough, Marvel superhero movies don't do all that well in China. And in an effort to make sure that that changed, not only had they made this, The Eternals, but they made a movie called Shang-Chi, also due out in the fall, another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that is about a Chinese superhero, having made last year, or having released last year, Mulan, the live-action remake of the Chinese folktale cartoon that they had made in the 90s. And in a release document of the movies that are about to come out in China, issued by the Chinese government, apparently, yesterday or the day before, The Eternals and Shang-Chi are not on the list. So China is is, is in some interesting gavat game with Disney. And if you read Bob Iger, the outgoing CEO uh, of Disney's memoir, uh, the time of his life or the time of my life, um, he goes into rhapsodic detail about his incredible skill in negotiating the opening of Disneyland in Shanghai and what he did and how he made good, you know, he explained to the Chinese why this would be good for them and blah, 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 blah. And China now has the whip hand on the most important entertainment company in the world. It can futz around with it on the question of whether or not these things are released. And then you got Apple, which is manufacturring phones all over. And what are, what's the what's the thing about Hollywood and Silicon Valley? They hate Trump. They hate Trump. They don't like Trump. Nobody there likes Trump. Everybody talks against Trump. <clears throat> Social media, you know, they're, they're supporters of doing everything they can to, you know, um, uh, in, in make sure that Trump doesn't have a position on social media and all of that. So this isn't just the media the way we think about it, which is, you know, the New York Times and networks and all that and how they all hate Trump. This is Solons of American business. If you need uh, an accelerant for your po- new accelerant for your populist message, it is these companies are fronting for the regime that may have killed 600,000 Americans 
And it, and it's a it's a real quandary for the cultural left in this sense. I mean, you mentioned Mulan. Mulan, there was a little mini controversy over that movie because parts of it were filmed in I, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Xinjiang province, where the Uyghur minority is currently being imprisoned by the Chinese government, and where an uh, an overwhelmingly effective and and terrifying authoritarian surveillance state has been created, which the Chinese government sees as a really wonderful. I mean, they they treat it like it's a uh, celebration that Disney remember the Disney village where you know everything's perfect it looks like the Truman show like they're creating a surveillance state version of that in this province where Mulan was was filmed and you know the cultural left won't go to North Carolina to film a movie if there aren't a number appropriate number of transgender bathrooms and yet you know you have there are so many uh hypocritical moves on the cultural left now that will continue to and should be exposed and discussed and talked about Abe so doesn't this suggest something about the cultural left or liberals, as I was talking about this in relation to the year of, you know, uh, you know, condemning America, you know, saying America was rotten or sinful or evil at its root in 1619 and all of that. Um, so the real truth is that what they like to do is attack America. What, what what their juice, the juice, the thing that really thrills them is going at America's innards and guts and roots. And they view any effort to question uh the international order uh or you know to, the the way things are going in other places where we might take a moral stand um as a distraction from this vastly more important effort. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the principle is anti-Americanism. It's not, it's not combating injustice and evil. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it is, it is, um, you know, standing, standing sort of against America. And also once you decide that we are, uh, we are, that the U S is so evil that we're in no position to tell anyone else how to run their affairs, um, you hand over, um, you know, the, 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 the rules of the game to, to other bad, every other bad actor. That's it. Then let me point out another thing, Noah. That, so um, the New York Times did a piece earlier this week highlighting the lives lost, the 68 children killed in the Israeli uh, strikes on Gaza, right? It's like one of those, lo- you know, it's like like the gallery from from uh, September 11th, you know, where basically the New York Times did portraits of every single person killed on 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 9/11 that was called faces of something I can't remember what it was called, but this you know Im- immensely complicated and impressive bit of research and and tribute paying. So this story is of course about, you know, the evils wrought on these 68 children. Um two things to say about that because uh, it gets to Israel as a proxy for the United States in the left's eyes in all these ways. Um, one is that um, how many children have died in Syria? How many, ch- I mean, if you go, uh, con- wh- where are there civil conflicts right now in the world? I, I, you know, there are probably 11 or 12 active wars as they're going. Does anybody care about the children who are dying in them? No. And then, Point two is 
Uh, Israel and Gaza were at war for 11 days or something like that, right? Gaza fired 4,300 rockets at Israel. Israel then fired ordnance at, 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 uh, at Gaza. Uh, we, this, this was treated as a world historical calamitous event and a, you know, war of uh, unprecedented horror and savagery in which 68 children died over the space of 11 days in strikes at urban, you know, in a, in a, in a very, very urban setting. Um, we are supposed to treat this as though it is a war crime of unprecedented proportions. Wouldn't you maybe look at that and say Israel's surgical precision and it's, and it's, uh, almost uh, unprecedented effort to spare the lives of civilians as it was trying to degrade Gaza's offensive capability. Isn't that the story that is not being told in the 68 kids died in, in Gaza? Yeah, I suppose uh, if you're inclined towards rationality, um, you know, going back to the, to the China stuff, this is, you know, there's this element on the left that thinks that this was, this is all, this was all a game designed to get the United States back involved in, in the Middle East. And they're so desperate to divorce. We're so desperate to divorce ourselves from the Middle East. And what all Joe Biden wants to do is pivot to Asia. That's all Barack Obama wanted to do. That's all Donald Trump wants to do. And every time, you know, the Middle East pipes up and just keeps dragging us in there. Um, and the Trump administration's uh, chief, legacy achievement in that area is that if you were to actually engage in this region with a, uh, a theory of geopolitics that takes into account reality and not the sol- solipsism that the peace processors have devoted themselves to, you can actually give yourself space to divorce yourself from the region to, to uh, reduce your co- level of commitments and create a more stable balance. Um, that's a lesson that we should apply probably to many other places um, the, th- the theme of this podcast seems to be Donald Trump was right. So I want to introduce one little last Donald Trump was right. Um, a year ago today, May 28th, 2020, Ned Price, who is the State Department spokesman now, writing in the uh, vehicle National Security Action, which was this um, Obama administration foreign policy in exile group that sort of existed to criticize everything uh, Donald Trump did in foreign policy. Um, it was helmed by Ben Rhodes, who was uh, deputy national security advisor for Barack Obama and Jake Sherman, Jake Sherman. Um, I th- Wendy, Wendy advisor. Sherman, Wendy Sherman. No, no, no. Jake, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan. Thank you. It was national security advisor. Now it was their group. And he wrote for this organization about Donald Trump's approach to Russia, specifically the defunct uh, intermediate range nuclear forces treaties and the open skies treaties, which the uh, Trump administration divorced themselves from. And their, th- their thinking was rather simple. The Obama administration had noted the extent to which Russia had abrogated its responsibilities to these treaties. There was one party observing them and that was us. They were functionally defunct and we were leaving them. And, um, uh, Ned Price wrote that the combination of these two withdrawals makes negotiating a new start treaty all that much more crucial. It's a it's a part of a of a, of a broad abdication of of the Trump administration's responsibility to engage diplomatically in these regions, 
And what did the Obama or what did the Biden administration do? Now it's giving Russia a lot of gifts these days, but one of them it's not going to give back is open skies. Open skies is over. We are never getting back into it. It was defunct then. It's defunct now. And I'd be willing to bet INF, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, is just as dead. Um, it's one of those things that we can now we can now the truth can be told when the stakes are so low. Yeah, well, I don't know if this podcast is about Donald Trump being right. I think politically it may be about Donald Trump uh, developing a, 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 a shifted narrative um, that isn't just they were really mean to me and I made the greatest economy ever and then they ruined it and all of that. All of that is what, what he'll say. But that he can say, I was willing to look at these things dead in the eye and the, and and if you look at the year and a half... What did I do? I did Operation Warp Speed, and they said the Chinese didn't do it, and then they they wouldn't let you say that. They wouldn't let you say that on Facebook. They wouldn't let me tweet. They wouldn't let you say anything. Uh, there's a conspiracy of business and media and 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 Democrats to cover up the truth about the worst thing that has happened to the world in the 21st century uh you're really going to put these people back in power so um he you know he can't just run you know you don't just want to run on the same message as 2016 2024 is going to be a different year and they're going to be different things to exploit but i'm just saying they may be laying the table in which case biden's decision to go hard potentially go hard at the wuhan lab leak story may be politically prudent because if he can get ahead of it and not be looking not look like somebody who was part of the effort to downgrade it um that will avail him well so with that i wish you all a wonderful memorial day weekend we'll be back on tuesday for abe christina noah i'm john pot keep the candle burning